You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, this morning as we study your word, I'm grateful that that you have brought truth to the world through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In him is all truth. And as we study your word and get to know him and to become your children by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we are given the great truths of Scripture so that we can comport ourselves in a manner that will bring honor to you and glory to your Son and that will cause us to take care of one another, which is what we will look at today. And Father, as we consider these things, I pray that you would give us grace and deference and uh, wisdom that we might be to each other in the body of Christ what you intended for us to be. And we'll thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. So much of what Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians, especially in these middle to later chapters, has to do with how we treat one another, how we take care of one another, how we are there for one another, how we've got each other's six, if you will. And uh, he, he pulls no punches. He's seen a, a body of believers who, who would sue one another on the one hand and let unbelievable immorality go on on the other hand that was damaging and harming people without calling it out and dealing with it. And those are not signs of, church, of a church that looks after one another, that takes care of one another. And so he, and he, he deals with, with everything, as we've seen in the first chapters, from what we looked at, some, some horrendous sexual sin, some lawsuits, and, and various and sundry other misunderstandings of the Word of God. And then he deals with the questions that they asked him. In chapter 7, remember, he said, regarding the things that you asked me, one of the things that we're going to be looking at again is one, probably one of those questions that we'll get to today. Um, Jess was, was scheduled to teach this week, but he just wasn't up to it. So we're going to uh, take back up where we left off. We left off in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 with uh, verse 20. So let's read um, from 14 to the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 14 to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Therefore, my beloved, speaking of what he talked about before, remember, whenever you see a therefore, you always want to find out what it's there for. Um, And he is talking about the uh, temptation and difficulties in life. But he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifice, sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice... They sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we, we are not stronger than he, are we? All things are lawful, 
but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone should say to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who conformed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews, or to Greeks, or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they may be saved. And then verse 1 of chapter 11, which actually fits here. Be imitators of me, just, also as, I, just as I also am of Christ. So... Last week, or last time, which would have been, oh, for the nerd's sake in here, the 9th of April, um, Paul was dealing with those things offered in sacrifice to the idols, and he was explaining to the Corinthians that although the idols are nothing, and the food is just food, the demons behind those idols are what were significant. And... Uh, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, early New Testament times with wooden deities set up in a temple, or whether it's modern church where they advocate false doctrines, we're, we're still struggling with the sacrifices to idols today. We just don't have as much food involved. So he said in verse 20, But I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. And we talked about the fact that sacrifices that the, gen, that the Gentiles make are to spiritual beings behind the idol, the demons. In the same way that the partaker of a table is a sharer in the truth of that table, their association with it. So the Corinthians who would participate in the idol, idol celebrations in the temple would actually become sharers in demons, uh, whether they intended to or not. Now, they may not fall under the power of the demon nor worship it because they are partaking of a celebration for that demon, but they have become a part or a sharer in the demon itself, Paul says, and Paul would not have them in any way, any way, shape, or form be associated with demons. The Israelites did this as well in Deuteronomy chapter 32, and we looked at that, but, uh, and then we looked at the, the concept of the sharers and the word koinonia, which is, um, or in this particular case, koinonos, where it's a participant um, the relational aspect of fellowship in which those Corinthians were actually fellowshipping with demons, intentionally or not. So the word for share, we, we finished up with that fact being that it's a very strong word indicating close communion. How many of you have your friends over for dinner? Do you sit at the same table? Or do you put them in the living room and you sit in the dining room? I ain't sharing with those people. They can come into the house, but they're actually, if we had an outhouse, that's where I'd put them. No, you don't do that. You sit at the same table, you share, you commune, you talk, you, you share your experiences, you share your lives. That, isn't that interesting how that is, how, how as an aspect of how we relate to one another, that has, that has sur survived the millennia. Eating together is significant, isn't it? It always has been. And at the marriage 
Supper of the Lamb, we will be at the marriage table of the Lamb. It's going to be an interesting and a wonderful thing. Anyway, so Paul is telling them, if you're going to be at that table, you're sharers in that concept, in those teachings, in those, uh, the proliferation of that evil, even if you don't intend to be. They had a false view of gods and goddesses, and because of that false view, they were taken in by demonic powers, and so the pagans worshipped them. And Paul was saying, your association, what's it going to look like? Now, we don't want to run through our lives always concerned about every single thing about what we look like. But what has to do with demons, I think we're good at making certain it doesn't look like we're worshiping demons. Don't you? You think that's probably something we ought to avoid, looking like we're worshiping demons? That's what he's telling the Corinthians. Don't do it. So he says in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. To worship the Lord Jesus Christ and share in his fellowship precludes one from partaking at the table of demons. The reverse is also true. If one as a worshiper of demons, if one is a worshiper of demons, he cannot be a worshiper of the true God. They don't, they don't go together. It's, it's not... You can't be 60, 40, 50, 50, 79, 70, now, now you're going to find out about my math skills, 70, 30, 80, 20. You serve the Lord or you don't. Do not try to partake of both. There are some who believe that the implication here is that communion is a form of sacrifice or it's a service, communion service is a sacrifice. It is not. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, once for all, when he said it is finished, guess what the word finished meant? It was finished with ongoing, continual uh, repercussions, good repercussions for us. As we become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, His finished work on the cross is substituted, is given to us. It is placed over us like a mantle. And we don't have to do some sacrifice at some communion service somewhere again and again and again. We don't put Him back on the cross again and again. It was once for all done. He saved and He sent us and He, and he sealed us. Um, this, so that's incorrect. Um, the Corinthian believers, and by we, by the way, and we, by the way, by extension, are not immune to the power of demons. They would corrupt us. And if we are saved, we can only partake of the table of the Lord. For the Corinthians to attempt participation in the pagan temples would be to open themselves up to demonic influence. Don't do that. Paul is cautioning them and reminding them that their allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ only. Should one of the Corinthians wish to partake of these demonic feasts, he should question his salvation. Carol. Well, I, it's hard to say. I don't know. I don't spend time in foreign countries. But there are countries that I understand, as I understand from missionaries, where the, the, the gospel brings people out of demonic practices. And it's possible for them to still place some faith, some concern about their well-being as needing to observe some of those practices. It's not true. And so today, the same advice would be to them. You have overcome those practices by being a child of the king. Get out of them. So that would be an overt, obvious application today. That in the countries where there are still demonic practices, overt, clear daily demonic practices where believers are brought out of that, come out of it, would be what the missionaries should teach them. Um, I haven't really thought this through to 
to apply it to some of the silly stuff that goes on in so-called mainline churches today. But when we, it's my opinion, correct me if I'm wrong, but when we imbibe false doctrine, we're serving demons. Because good doctrine comes from where? It comes from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow of turning. A little shadow, no shadow of turning. So if we are consistently indulging in false teaching and believing it and living it out, we're worshiping some other God. We're worshiping something other than Jehovah God. And so Paul would call us out of that too. We cannot partake of the table of false doctrine and the table of true doctrine. Now, I'm getting carried away here. I don't want to get too application happy and, and get into to deep water, but you follow what I'm saying here? God doesn't have shades of doctrine. Um, for those of us that are really black and white people, we really like that. What he does want us to do is to be careful about how we present that to people and how we encourage them and how we persuade them and how we bring it to them. You don't just walk up, kick them in the teeth and say, and you're serving demons, and I'm, if I have a chance, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> That's not what you do. You preach the gospel to them. You bring it to them through love and care. And can you have an unbeliever over to dinner? You bet. There's only one or two, there's only one kind of person that I can think of that, that in the New Testament we are cautioned not to eat with. And that is a so-called believer who is living in unrepentant sin. But unbelievers, have them over. Serve them bacon. Unless they don't like it. So did that help? Carol, did that help? So we've got, we've got clear examples of it in foreign countries where there's, like Indonesia, probably in, in darkest parts of Africa, where they're still actually serving demons. And when they're called out of those, they have to leave those practices, whatever it was they did, burn incense or all of those kinds of things. They've got to stop them. They've got to stop because it's, you can't partake of that and of the table of the Lord at the same time. They don't mix. Should one of the Corinthians wish to partake, Paul is, is trying, I believe he's communicating this. In these demonic feasts, he should question his salvation. He should take inventory and recognize that that desire would not come from the Spirit of God. That desire would not be encouraged by Scripture. It would be interdicted. It would be proscribed, not prescribed. Any questions or comments about verse 21? Good question. Or, verse 22, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? You know, that kind of sounds like a silly Sunday school. Who in here thinks they can out-arm wrestle God? You know, I mean, it's like when I read that the first th time I read it years and years ago, I thought, why would he even say that? Nobody would think they were stronger than God. But we do things that sometimes cause it to appear that. We act that way. Paul has been speaking to the Corinthians in a manner that indicates he assumed they did not know better in this case. If they did know better... Here he is challenging them to recognize that if they would do something that would provoke the Lord to jealousy, he'd be able to handle that easily. Would they compare their strength with the strength of the God of the universe? It was a foolish comparison and very possible an outgrowth of his concern for the arrogance that seemed to permeate this church. They were much better than everybody else. They were Ivy League Christians. God would have no competition with demons he wants no competition with demons for the love of his children. He wants us to love him wholly and completely and not, and not uh, 
trying to think of a good word that isn't too offensive, but not sublet some of our love to anything but Him. Nothing is more offensive to God than idolatry because it's a clear indication of unbelief. Whether the unbelief that prevents salvation or the unbelief that results in a weak, superficial Christianity that may have all the trappings of power but really has no power. It may look good on the outside, but it's not changing the person on the inside from step to step, grace to grace, sanctification at a, a step at a time into the child of God that becomes what gives glory to God. And that's what these Corinthians were doing. Paul would have nothing stand in the way of their sanctification. Justification, instantaneous, boom, you're saved. Sanctification, not so much. Step by step, bit by bit. Um, we all become aware of things that we're doing that are offensive to others. It's what we do about those things that tells a lot about us. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Don't provoke him to jealousy. You're not stronger than him. Love him. Stop it. He's saying stop it in as many ways as he possibly can to this culture. Power was an important thing, especially to the Greek mind. And he's telling them, you haven't got the power to do something that the Lord can't handle. So don't even, don't even go there. Any questions, comments? Verse 23. All things are lawful. Remember, this is the Corinthian mantra. All things are lawful, Paul. We can do anything we want. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify or build up or strengthen or encourage or make better. <coughs> Excuse me. Every nominal Christian worth his salt will always look at each and every principle that he's given and try to come up with a way to go beyond the principle. How can I? How can I take advantage of this? How can I get past this? How can I do what I want? Paul has covered eating the foods offered in the idolatrous feasts in the pagan temples. Now the question turns to meat that is not in the temples, which he'll deal with, but maybe came from them. He starts the discussion, this discussion, this next little principle, this next little step or principle he will teach them. He starts the discussion out repeating a statement he made back in chapter 6, verse 12. Not all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Not all things edify. Apparently, the believers at Corinth had almost taken as a slogan the idea that all things are lawful. Paul has to remind them again and again that though something may be lawful, it may not be constructive. And I can think of a lot of things that I've done in my life, especially to my poor, sweet wife, that may have been legal, but they just weren't constructive in our marriage. They weren't effective in strengthening it and building it up. And it's one of those things, if I had to do all over again, I'd do a lot of things differently. I'd do a lot of lawful things or maybe not have done them at all. That is, these things don't build things, they don't build each other up. So it's, you may, you may observe, I'm thinking of some of the things that I struggle with. You may observe a character flaw in somebody else. Maybe you're not the guy to fix that. Maybe they're not the person who wants you to fix that, you know? So those kinds of things have to be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis. That's one of the most overt ones that I can think of. I, I'm just awful, especially when it comes to spelling and grammar. I see it, and I'm really awful about it <laughs> sometimes. So Paul is reminding them again and again. Thus it may not... It, Paul was confirming and reteaching to the Corinthians the idea that each and every one of them must always look outside themselves before doing something. And this, is, this is counsel 
biblical counsel to us today. It's in the scripture. It's principle driven. How will this action affect others? They must act them, ask themselves. The community of believers is far more important than the legal rights of the one person. The stronger must always help the weaker, must always comfort, must always build up, must always strengthen, must always encourage, edify, to build a house, to erect a building, to build up from the foundation, to restore by building, to rebuild, to repair, metaphorically, to establish, to promote growth in Christian wisdom, to, to promote growth in affection, to promote growth in grace, to promote growth in virtue, to promote growth in holiness, to promote growth in blessedness. To grow in wisdom ourselves and piety. To build a house is where the word comes from. Yesterday I worked on remodeling the bathroom again. And <clears throat> do all of us have all of the tools we need as Christians to know how to build each other up? Or can we learn from each other? Sure we can. Absolutely. So yesterday I had two angles for molding. And the molding wasn't square. It was that stupid, you know, it has the, ugh. so, you know, what did I do? I didn't waste lumber. I called my son-in-law. Oh, Isaiah, I have a mess over here. At any rate, boom, he came over, and, and it looks beautiful now because he did the cutting. <laughs> That's what we should do. I don't know how to handle this situation. The questions that are asked, how can I help this person? Find somebody that can help you help them before you step in it, if you will. The Corinthians were just, it sounds to me like they were being arrogant. They were not taking care of one another. They were not watching out for one another. They were suing one another. And they were just, it, many of them, not all of them, of course, were an uncaring lot. So Paul is telling them, okay, you may have the right to do this, but do you really need to do it? Will this build your brethren up? Will it strengthen them? So the word edify has also been translated profitable. It's the idea which comes from building a house. When one is building a house, one takes steps that add to the construction and strengthen the building, making it useful. This is the same idea. Just because something is lawful for me to do, if I do it, will I be adding to the body? Will I be strengthening the body? Will I be encouraging others? Will I be building up those around me? Will I be strengthening the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world? These are the questions that the Corinthians needed to ask themselves when it came to everything, but most specifically here, the eating of the meat that was offered to idols. A truly committed Christian is one who is dedicated to the well-being and benefit of others. He is faithful to the scriptures, and he does all things, as Paul says at the end of this chapter, for the benefit of others. He does all things to care for others, to take care of others. He is he, when he's faced with a decision about doing something, first he asks, is it biblical? Is this a biblical thing? Do I have a right to do it? If the answer is yes, his next question will be, how will this edify and build others up? Starting with those closest to him and moving out to those who are in his circle of friends and then moving out to the world. And you're going to see Paul is concerned about unbelievers as well, how we, appear to, how we, how we treat unbelievers as well. Um, there's no secret scripture that says you can lie to unbelievers and, and there's nothing, none of that, none of that. We are to treat people as the Lord said in the, in the, in the great commandment, in the golden rule, as we expect others to treat us. Any questions? Verse 23. So verse 24, 
This is an interesting one. I looked up the original, how it, how it reads in the Greek. And sometimes when you do that, you go, I'm sure glad there are translators. Other times it's just, you go, wow, that's really cool. This was one of those. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. The literal translation of this verse is, no one the thing of himself let him seek, but the thing of the other. Don't seek things for yourself. Seek them for others. Look out for others. Take care of others. It's not just the good of ourselves we are to avoid, but anything. Paul wants the Corinthians, and by extension us, to go about seeking the good of others. The word neighbor, while logical and, and appropriate in this verse, is actually not there. It's others. And by the way, who are our neighbors? What's a good synonym for neighbors? Others. So, I have no problem with the insertion of that word there. The word is simply others. By implication, since we realize Paul is writing to a group of believers that would be applied to other believers, but more broadly, it applies to all those around us. We are to seek the good of others, all others. Now, sometimes the seeking of that good can mean giving them something that they need. Sometimes it can mean encouraging them. Sometimes it can mean secretly providing for them something that they cannot provide themselves. Sometimes it may mean in an appropriate way to call them out for a bad behavior if you're actually lovingly interested in their better. And in some cases, it may be um, to um, admonish them for false teaching, false doctrine, for mistreating someone else. Sometimes it's spanking your child, is it not? I never, ever enjoyed that. Sometimes I would just, I would, I'd know it was coming. I had to do it, and I'd go, I think I'm just going to exit the house for a while. Because <laughs> I just, you know, it's, actually, if you've got a, if you're a person who really likes spanking your child, get a different job. Get a different job. It, it should just be heartbreaking for you to have to do this, that kind of thing. Necessary, but heart, heartbreaking. And so sometimes we're going to come into situations with other believers in our lives where what we've got to do is heartbreaking, but it has to be done. I would, I would encourage us all if that in those situations, get counsel. Uh, if it's not a life-threatening situation, take your time. Move slowly. Follow scriptural admonition. Be careful. Love them. Make sure they know you're not doing it as much as you can out of vindictiveness or superiority or arrogance, but you care. But do it. Love your, seek the, seek the good of those around you. And it, sometimes it's, sometimes it's, like I said, it's a simple thing. It's, I, I, I can think of times when we have come home and we found groceries on our doorstep. What, a, what an incredible blessing that was. Somebody knew, somebody took care, and somebody spent the money and the time and have the concern. But I can also remember when I asked a person one time if there was anything I could change in my life and they gave me a three-page document <laughs> complete with bullets and suggestions. And I've talked about this before. What was really hard was probably fully two-thirds of that document was very accurate. That person loved me. I, that person and I are still good friends to this day. Special person in my life. Not afraid to look me in the eye and say, you're a jerk. And I know when they say it, I'm not even going to give the sex because, but when they say it, I probably just blew it. They don't say that kind of thing lightly. We all have people like that in our lives. Seek their good 
and we know they're seeking our good. Any questions? Any concerns? Comments? Verse 25. Now, and this, <laughs> Paul, okay, eat anything that's sold in the market without asking questions for conscience sake. Keep it simple. Don't stir the water. We all know water stirrers, pot stirrers, don't we? Who just kind of like to slap things around to see what comes up. With that, as sort of an introduction to this next section, Paul takes up the question of meat from the idolatrous feasts. Meat that was sold in the local meat markets. <clears throat> it's likely, as I talked about earlier, that this question was asked of him. Remember that in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul talks about answering the questions that were written to him. This is likely one of those questions. What do we do about meat that we know was sold in the meat markets? The meats in the meat markets that we know was being used in idolatrous feasts. And we're going to dinner at a buddy's house, and he might have that meat on his table. Paul says, don't ask. Eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking questions. He was far more concerned with the conscience of the believers. He was more concerned with the atmosphere that permeated the idolatrous feasts. The meat itself was simply meat. It was simply food. He advises the Corinthians that as they shop for their meat for dinner, just buy it, purchase it, ask no questions about its previous use. While a strong Christian may not care that it was used that morning in an idol temple, a weak Christian may. And that strong Christian should be more concerned about seeking the good of his neighbor, his Christian brother with a weak conscience. One of the concerns may have been that it was customary for the Jews, especially, to scrupulously question where their food was coming from. And from this, this could cause problems for the weaker Christians in the church. Paul was telling them, buy it and eat it. Barclay put it this way. His advice is that a Christian can buy anything that is sold in the shops and ask no questions. It was true that the meat sold in the shops might well have formed part of a sacrifice or have been slaughtered in the name of some god lest the demons enter into it. But it is possible to be too fussy and to create difficulties where none need exist. After all, in the last analysis, all things are God's. God created everything. All things are His. How? It's not. It's not unholy either. It's just meat. You know, it, it's now, well, at any rate, it's, it's just food. It's just meat. And sometimes I have been guilty of this. I make mountains out of molehills and to the detriment of those around me, to the, to the detriment of the, the testimony of the, of the Lord, of the Christian church in God's world. So, and then Paul says it in caps. This is all in caps. I like it. It's, he's shouting at us. I'm pretending. Verse 26. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Paul reasons thus. Everything that has been created was created by God and God declared that all of creation was good. Remember the evening and the morning? And then in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3. And it was good. And it was very good, was his final declaration. Therefore, by being involved in a pagan worship service, the meat of an animal is not changed into something evil. It is still a creation of God, and therefore good and suitable for consumption. This is a quote directly out of Psalm 24, and it was used by the Jews often at the beginning of a meal to acknowledge that what they were about to partake of <coughs> uh, was given to them by God himself. 
Paul reminds, Paul reminds the Corinthians and later the Corinthians, excuse me, here and later Timothy about this great truth. There it is, Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. And then 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5. For everything, Paul said, created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Now, we also can use careful discernment here. I'm sure arsenic has its uses, but let's not eat it. Nah. And I'm probably not going to be caught eating annelids. I'm sure they're good. I'm going to feed those to fish. Worms. Earthworms. Anybody here ever eat one? I've eaten some weird things when people challenge me, but I've never done a worm. Not on purpose. <laughs> Jim. Because he didn't like the Jews. <laughs> I guess I have uh, my own opinions about that. I think that, that there was probably some issues with how meat is stored and cared for. Uh, but uh, it was mostly ceremonial. Had ceremonial value. And sometimes... It may have very well been that God was apportioning things out. This is good for this. This is not good for this. It may be good for something else. And so for his people, for the Jews, for at that time, that was part of the, uh, the commandment to abstain. That's a, that's a general answer, which means I'm going to study this and come back next week. <laughs> yeah. And, and Peter was what nationality? What wasn't he Jewish? And he said, arise, take, and eat of everything that Jim just mentioned. Shellfish. I can't remember all the things. Uh, carnivores. Um, Non-ungulates. Animals that cloven hoof. You can eat those. Except for rabbit or pigs and, and etc. Camels. Yeah. Ooh, who would only eat a camel? That'd be like eating a water tower. Uh, I'll, uh, I guess I've never really... It's just never risen in my life. So that's probably something that uh, I'll work on for you, because he just set me up. Probably. Hey, if they want to, if they want to be stupid, let them be stupid. You know, as long as they're not harming me, I don't. Uh, as long as they don't drive while they're doing it. But uh, I personally do not choose to partake of anything that alters my conscious, my conscious mind, other than prime rib. Now, I had some prime rib last night, and I, I for almost two minutes, I just sat back in the seat. Whoa. Yeah. But other than that, no, I, it's, it's, it, there's, there's a principle that we are reasonable creatures, and God deals with us on a basis in, 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 through the Scriptures of reason. And when you partake of things that alter your ability to reason and think and move and act and act and inter, interrelate with other people, I don't think that's smart. I think that's a really bad idea. Um, 
And then there are other things that you can eat a little bit of, but if you eat a whole bunch of it, it may kill you. I mean, like, why? There's some kind of Japanese fish. Uh, puffer, yeah. Really? Why don't I just swallow some diesel, you know? You only swallow a little bit, no big deal. But, I mean, it's okay. If they want to do that, I'm not going to do it. So the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And I will come back next week with a more definitive answer as to why we should all avoid oysters. I used to eat oysters all the time. I like them. And I, I still, but my wife doesn't like to cook them. She says they look like, well, never mind. They look gross. Yeah, okay. I'm thinking I probably want them hot. Any other questions except for Jim? Verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. It is interesting to note here, by the way, that Paul does not discourage Christians from eating with non-Christians. Indeed, as I mentioned earlier, the only person that a Christian should avoid eating with are those who profess Christ but are living in blatant and open and unrepentant sin. We're told not to eat with them. And that's, that's a command. It's not a suggestion. If you are invited over to another person's home to share a meal with them, go, he says. Eat whatever is set before you. But if there is a question nagging in the back of your mind as to whether or not this meat has been offered to idols, don't ask that question. Simple enough. Don't give place for offense to occur as our liberty allows us to do these things. And the only reason we would restrict that liberty is so we would not offend a weaker brother. It would also be our responsibility to help that weaker brother understand his freedom in Christ so that his conscience would grow by sanctification and he, then, he can then begin to enjoy the freedoms that Christ has given him. So if an unbeliever invites you and you want to go, go. Don't ask questions. Everybody understand that? How you can stir a pot that doesn't need stirring? Now, if the thing on your plate is still moving, go ahead and ask questions. But other than that, but, but on the flip side, if you have somebody over to your home and you know that a certain type of food is something they won't eat or can't eat, just don't serve it. Just, just find, out ahead, find out ahead of time. Be a, be a hospitable host. Find out ahead of time what they like and take pains to serve that. Won't that speak loudly to them and encourage them? <laughs> <laughs> Papa John's. But, verse 28, if anyone says to you, and here's how they say it, <laughs> this meat was sacrificed to idols. Don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. So, you're sitting at a table getting ready to partake of some meat, young Corinthian, Paul says, and someone at the table remarks that the meat you are about to eat was actually sacrificed to an idol. What do you think about that? Now, it does not matter if it was another pagan who said that, attempting to create a gotcha moment, or if it was a Christian with a weak conscience. Did you know that this meat was in the idol temple this morning before it was purchased? If he says that to you, weaker Christian saying that to you, you're now in the position of sanctioning idol worship by your consumption of the meat, or it is your chance to protect the conscience of the weak Christian. How to do this while maintaining graciousness to your host is, is the difficulty. But Paul is saying, if that's said, 
It's who knows why it was said, but your responsibility is to the weaker Christian. Your responsibility isn't to the host as much as it is to the weaker Christian to protect his conscience. Whoever informed you was doing it either out of maliciousness or concern. Paul doesn't address that. If this meat, if someone says to you, this meat is sacrificed idol, do not eat it. For the sake of the one informed you, not for your, and for conscience sake. <clears throat> so, either way, although you are at liberty to eat it, it would be best here for you to restrain your liberty, to decline eating, and this is for the sake of conscience. And Paul will explain that in the next verse. I mean, he says, your own conscience. I mean, not your own conscience. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? Paul is concerned about the other man's conscience, the weak Christian's conscience. If he is a pagan, your consumption of the food would, after his declaration and in his mind, sanction idolatry. If it is a weak Christian brother, your consumption after his declaration may very well harm him by possibly improperly communicating that idolatry is just not that big a deal. The last statement for why is my freedom judged by another's conscience can be understood as saying, although eating this food is a simple act of my freedom, I will not allow it to become a means of offense to my brother. My freedom should not be slandered by expressing it in a way that offends a weaker brother, a weaker Christian brother. It may take some creative actions in a situation like this in order to be as inoffensive as possible to all involved. But the important thing in Paul's mind, indeed the most important thing, is not to offend the weaker brother. Some of these situations you're not going to get out of without offending someone. Make sure it isn't the weaker Christian brother. Paul is saying. Questions? Comments? If I partake with thankfulness... Why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? What you mentioned earlier. Everything God created is to be is worth and what it says in First Timothy is good and nothing is to be rejected if it was received with thanks. Paul says, if I participate with thankfulness, that thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? This verse follows 29 completing, in completing the explanation. There should be no judgment about what I eat, having given thanks to the Lord before I ate. I am free to eat anything that is placed before me. But if I choose, because of another man's weak conscience, to limit myself, then nothing can occur that will upset the relationship I have with that weaker brother. This will not damage. I won't damage the relationship I have with that weaker brother over food, over inconsequential things. Now, if I damage the relationship I have with a weaker brother because I'm the one who's been called to call him out for sin, that's one thing. But over food, please, Paul says, don't. It seems that in Paul's mind he was fleshing out the entire situation should he actually partake of the meat after being warned that it was offered to an idol. There would be no cause of slander anyway because he was free to eat it but the point of this section is that we should limit our freedom in order not to offend the scruples of a weaker Christian. We should also limit our freedom in order not to give false impressions about Christian behavior. So then he says in verse 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, here's the overriding principle. Do all to the glory of God. This is almost something like we would say today, note to self, do everything no matter what you are doing to the glory of God. 
This is a reminder to us that every simple, simple act of our lives, the most mundane and nondescript, should be done in such a way that they will bring glory to God, that they will not bring uh, detraction to the glory of God. Our behavior should be such that it will not reduce or detract from the glory of God, but will rather enhance it in everything we do. And that can be difficult, but uh, the Holy Spirit is able to do what we cannot. Any questions about that verse? Verse 32. You know what? I think we're going to stop there because the last two verses are quite involved. Any other questions about this section? And we'll uh, find out why we shouldn't be eating shellfish next week. Or should. Pardon? Oysters? Oysters are fine. Well, oysters are shellfish. Did I get that right? Yeah, okay. Let's close in prayer. Father, you, your son, gave the greatest example of giving concern, of having concern for those around, for the others, when he divested himself of his glory. And for a while it was hidden, and he came here, and he took upon himself the form of a servant, and he became obedient unto the death of the cross so that we might live. He made it so that those who would trust in him and become the children of, of the Most High would live eternally with you when we deserved absolutely nothing but eternal hell. He gave the greatest example of looking out for the needs of others, the most final example of looking out for the needs of others, and the, most, the, the best example of how that brings glory to the Father on high. Help us as we live our lives to emulate that. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.